This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Kids, if you're going to class, you are dismissed. Pray with me, if you would, before we go to the Word. Heavenly Father, I uh, want to thank you, first of all, for the blessing that you have given us, the, the opportunity to be involved with your plan, the work that you are doing through Rachel and Ama. Thank you, Lord, for, for, for such an incredible gift that you would include us in your work over there. Thank you, Lord, for how you have, have used us to help these kids get educated, most of all, Lord, so that they can read your word, they can understand who you are, that they could use what they have in order to spread your name. Father, I, I humbly ask if it would be in your will that you would allow us to to see how you use some of these kids, that you would allow us to see their faith and what you have done outside of us and beyond us of your own sovereign will. Father, until then, we go to your word now to look for that truth, that, that mercy that saves the gift that you have given us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 123 this morning, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And as you know, I've said it multiple times, these Psalms were written for the Jews to sing as they were traveling to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. It's kind of like a, a vacation worship playlist, if you will. A few weeks ago, we saw the psalmist's need for a vacation in Psalm 120. We saw him at home lamenting the, the sinful, peace-hating place that he lived. Then a couple weeks ago in Psalm 121, we saw the excitement and danger of him being on the road on his way to where he was going. And last week in Psalm 122, we saw his, his joy and excitement, you know, when you finally pass the city limit sign of wherever you're going. On your trip, we saw his excitement when he finally made it to Jerusalem, where the house of the Lord and the thrones of David are set. However, sometimes, you may have experienced this, sometimes when you take a vacation, when you take a few days off, your body begins to tell you how tired you actually are. Sometimes after you take a moment to stop, to get off the hamster wheel of life, all the stresses you've buried begin to come to the surface, which is why sometimes when we take a few days to decompress, we end up actually having to deal with the things that have compressed us. And don't get me wrong, it doesn't take a vacation. 
to get there. But the question is, what do we do when we get there? What do you do when you've had enough? What do you do when you can't take any more? Because that's where we find our psalmist this morning. A few days into his vacation in Jerusalem and the stresses of life are, are bubbling up to the surface. In fact, just glance real quick at the beginning of verse 4. He says, Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. So again, the question I want to answer this morning is, what do you do when you've had enough? What do you do when you've had enough? Maybe it's enough of relationship struggles or family issues. Maybe it's enough of financial problems, like you keep making sacrifices and it's still not enough. Maybe it's someone who is attacking you. Maybe it's your own sin. Maybe it's you've had enough of all of the above. But what do you do when, for whatever reason, your soul has had enough? I think our psalmist has an answer for us this morning. Look at verse 1 and 2 where he tells us that when we've had more than enough, the first thing we must do is we must fix our eyes on the Lord. He says we must fix our eyes on the Lord. Psalm 123, verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of, a, of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. Now I hope you notice that in these two verses, the psalmist used the word eyes four times to paint a vivid picture of this intense focus that he's describing. But first, I want to draw your eyes to the end of verse 2 because how long does the psalmist say he is going to hold that focus? Well, he says, until the Lord shows him mercy. So how long is that? That's the point. We don't know. Which is why the emphasis becomes the focus, not so much the response. But now couple that waiting with this in verse 1. Where does the psalmist say God is, is while he waits for that mercy? He says God is on his throne in heaven. Which mean, means God's in charge of everything, including all of the things that, that this psalmist has had enough of. But he's not just in heaven. If someone is on their throne then what are they doing physically? What is their posture if someone is on a throne? What is God doing while this psalmist is waiting so intently for relief? Well, obviously, God is seated on His throne. He is neither surprised nor nervous nor upset about the psalmist's predicament. We actually see an amplified version of this picture in Isaiah chapter 6. Many of you are probably familiar with this passage uh, regarding God's holiness, but I want to draw your attention to another aspect of it. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the beginning of verse 1, Isaiah says this, 
He says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's important because Uzziah was one of the last good kings Judah ever saw. There were 150 years, there would only be two other decent kings. And it was going to be a long time before another decent king came around. Which amplifies what Isaiah said later in verses 8 through 10. He said, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. Well, for what? Well, God said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. In other words, when, when you talk about being worn out, Isaiah is volunteering to go preach the truth to Judah so that their resistance and rebellion to that truth would be solidified. It sounds like it was a great day for Isaiah. Not only did one of the last good kings of Israel die, but he's also volunteered to preach the people he lives with into judgment. However, what I want to point out to you is this. Where does God see Isaiah, or where does Isaiah see God in between these two bookends of chaos? He says in verses 1 through 4, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. After the death of Uzziah, and after the acceptance of Isaiah to, to the call to go preach the people of Judah into judgment, heaven was still in order. God was sitting on his throne, perfectly in control of everything that was going on. But listen, what I want you to see is that when both the psalmist and Isaiah saw God on his throne, there was an amazement. There was a reverence, there was an awe that seemed to command their gaze. An awe that seemed to drown out all the turmoil that was churning around them. I saw an interview once where a, a Navy SEAL was describing how, unlike the movies, their job is often filled with hours of boredom. And one example he gave was how they would often be dropped miles away from, from land at night in order to be sneaky, and then they would swim to shore. And he said that, that they would spend hours and hours and hours, five to ten feet deep in the ocean, swimming, just staring at a clock and a compass on this little propeller thing that they used to get there. But the interviewer, picking up on the swimming for hours in the pitch black ocean, asked, did you ever run into sharks or any other big scary animals? And listen to what this seal said. He said, well, 
there's nothing you could do about it. And so he said, yeah, we would be swimming and a couple of times something big would bump us. And, and our response would just be like, nope, it didn't happen. We just focus on our instrument panel. I give you that illustration to ask you this. What's your response when something big in life bumps you? And don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we should ignore these things like that, but don't we have something more than an instrument panel to focus on? Don't we have someone more captivating than a compass and a watch to hold our attention when life gets hairy? Let me ask it a different way. When life gets difficult... When you've had enough, how do you picture God? How do you see God when your life gets overwhelming? Do you see Him as apathetic and distracted and uninterested in your petty problems? Or maybe you see Him as a, as a stubborn genie who you simply need to just bug enough until He answers you. Or do you see Him as, as a grumpy old person with His arms crossed just so disappointed in the mess that you have made out of your life. But this is not the case, is it? The God that the psalmist is describing, your God, is none of these things. He's seated on His throne in heaven. He is neither distracted nor indifferent. He is not grumpy, nor has He grown tired of you. He is seated on His throne absolutely certain of what you need and when you need it. And He is willing and able to do what is necessary to achieve whatever He's aimed at for you because He loves you. But again, that's usually not how we see it, is it? Usually in the midst of, let's call it, lovingly sovereign difficulty when we know God's trying to teach us something, we're convinced that we have learned whatever He's teaching us. Right? Like, okay, Lord, I get it. I learned whatever you... You can stop now. I figured it out. No, God, stop. I'm done. I figured it out. When our kids were young, we had a, a happy rule before they were able to, allowed to get out of their crib or their bed, um, you know, we would train them so that, that if, if, if in the morning or time out or whatever, and they were grumpy or still crying, they weren't allowed to get out of their bed, we wouldn't rescue them. And if they were crying, we'd say, happy? You've got to be happy. And then we'd leave. We'd come back in. However, like any good inmate, our <laughs> children learned quickly how to, how to, how to do this dance. And so what would happen more often than not is we would walk into their room and they would be white-knuckling the edge of the crib going, happy, 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 you know, saying the words, but everything else was not. In other words, when things get difficult, when you feel like your soul has had enough, don't you sometimes feel like you're standing at the edge of the crib sobbing to God, happy, happy God. Really, stop. So again, how long does the psalmist say he will look to the Lord? Because if we're honest, isn't the bigger question how long we will 
look to God for mercy before we go and, and give up on him and try to find our own relief. The psalmist tells us there's a better way. He says at the end of verse 2 that we look to the Lord until he has mercy on us. And listen, this is a better way because unlike the, the denial of that Navy SEAL, when we fix our eyes on the one who is sitting sovereign, omnipotently on his throne, we will be comforted and strengthened and even encouraged in the midst of our problems, not in the absence of them. Simply seeing God on His throne and, and fixing our eyes on Him will be enough to encourage us to wait for His mercy instead of chasing our own relief. That's the first thing we see in Psalm 123. When we feel like our soul has had more than enough, the first thing we must do is fix our eyes on the Lord. Because simply fixing our eyes on God, on His throne, will be enough to encourage us to wait for His mercy instead of chasing our own relief. But that idea of relief raises a question in the next two verses. See if you can pick it out. Look at verses 3 and 4 where the psalmist tells us that when we feel like we've had enough, not only should we fix our eyes on the Lord, but we also cry out for mercy. We cry out for mercy. He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So here's the question. I wonder if you saw it. When he's had more of enough of contempt, when this psalmist is worn out, his soul is beleaguered, from the contempt of the proud. The question that came to my mind is why does he cry out to God for mercy and not relief? Why doesn't he cry out to God to smite the proud who are giving him contempt? Why doesn't he cry out to God for peace? Why does the psalmist cry out for mercy and not relief? Well, first, since I think mercy is one of those words that we hear all the time, let's make sure we understand what that actually means. Simply put, mercy is unmerited favor. Webster says it this way, Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Undeserved favor. So again, why does the psalmist cry out to God for mercy and not relief? The short answer is this, and listen, because this is very important. The, the, the reason that the psalmist and we should cry out for mercy is because we don't deserve relief. Let me say that again. The reason that the psalmist and we should cry out for mercy is because we don't deserve relief. Paul Tripp said it well when he said, there is no such thing as an innocent victim. Meaning not that you 
necessarily had it coming or that you did something to, to cause that person to do something to you. Not, not like that. But that you're not some innocent person that the world has conspired against. But isn't that how we view ourselves when things get difficult? Like a drug dealer calling the police because someone stole his drugs. We cry out to God for justice and relief for circumstances that, that make our life difficult for us, wondering how God could allow something like this to happen to someone as, as innocent as I. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen, we should cry out for mercy because what we deserve is for God to leave us to ourselves, to be consumed by the consequences of our own sin and the sin of those around us. But if that's the case, then how can this psalmist ask God for mercy? If it is so undeserved, how, how can this psalmist cry out for mercy as if the Lord will respond? It's almost like he feels like the Lord is due to respond. How can he be so bold? Well, the short answer is because God promised he would show him mercy. All the way back in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, the patriarch of the Israelites, He said, in the future, I'm going to show my people mercy. In the future, in different ways, I'm going to show my people mercy. In other words, this psalmist is banking on a promise that God made simply because God made Israel His people. He's banking on God's promise to show mercy, not just to anyone, but to the covenant people that he chose. Well, that's great, Pastor Grant, but the last time I checked, I'm not an Israelite. Well, brothers and sisters, the bad news is that God's promise hasn't changed. The good news is, is his promise has grown. You see, God did something that flung open the doors to anyone who would want to be a part of his people. You see, God showed no mercy to someone so that He could show mercy to anyone who would believe in Him. All throughout the Old Testament, God kept saying that He was going to show mercy to His people and to the nations, that's you and I, when He sent a Savior to redeem them from their sins. But God didn't give a ton of details about who that would be and, and how that was going to happen. In fact, the big question that God left hanging was, how is He going to show mercy to people who don't deserve it and yet remain just? How is He going to show mercy to people who don't deserve it and yet remain just? Enter Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, the second Adam, the only one who, because He was perfect, never needed mercy because he deserved justice. Yet, when Jesus, hours before his death, cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking for a different way, God's answer was no. And again, as he hung on the cross, again, deserving justice because he was dying for sins he didn't commit, 
He cried out again, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But again, he didn't receive an answer and was left to die. We know now that that wasn't the end of the story. The rest of the Bible tells us that the reason God forsook Jesus on the cross was so he wouldn't have to forsake you and I. That's called mercy. Again, Jesus didn't need mercy. He deserved justice. But God didn't give Jesus justice on the cross so he could show mercy to people like you and I. In other words, brothers and sisters, listen. When you feel like you've had enough, when your soul feels like it's had enough of this life, you can and should cry out for mercy. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus Christ bought it for you on the cross. Meaning we too should should cry out for mercy, not because we deserve it, but because just like this psalmist, God promised He would show mercy to His people. And God said, His people are anyone who believes that Jesus Christ paid for their sin. In other words, saints, when you feel like you've had enough, when it feels like the darkness of this world has its eyes fixed on you, you must fix your eyes on the Lord until He answers your cry for mercy. We must fix our eyes on the Lord until He answers our cry for mercy because God promised He'd never, or excuse me, He promised He'd answer that cry when he didn't answer Jesus' on the cross. God promised he would answer our cries for mercy when he didn't answer Christ's on the cross. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe yet that Jesus has done this for you, I pray, my prayer is that you would yearn, that you would long for, that you would desire and even need a God who would sacrifice himself in order to show you mercy. Listen, because He's the only one who will. You will not find mercy from any other God because there is no other God who has the authority to give it. And if you're concerned that you don't deserve it, everyone in this room can tell you the answer. It's way worse than you think. But as we sang earlier, praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness and new every morn, our sins they are many, but His mercy is more. So let me close with this final thought. Let's say you've had enough, your soul is, is beat down, and, and you do fix your eyes on the Lord until He shows you mercy. Let's say you do do this. How do you know when he's answered? What might that mercy look like? Well, let me give you three ways because it's not a simple answer. And the first one is the best and the most shocking. Because one of the amazing things about being a Christian is that sometimes God shows his people the greatest mercy of death. Sometimes God shows His people the greatest mercy 
of death, meaning for us, for Christians. The best answer to our cry for mercy is when God relieves us of this body of death and takes us home to be with Him for eternity. That's the best option. There's no better form of mercy that God can show us, which is why the Bible says that that we don't mourn like others do who have no hope when it comes to death. Because to a Christian, death is simultaneously something we don't want and the best thing that could happen to us. But obviously, death isn't God's default when life gets hard, otherwise there would be no Christians. So second, another form that mercy might take is simply relief. God might actually just relieve you of whatever it is that's exhausting you, relieve you of whatever stress you've had enough of. He might heal a relationship or remove a difficult person from your life or something like that. He might actually relieve you of your stress. And those are joyous occasions for sure. It it feels to us very vividly like God has answered our prayer. But even though they are joyous, the, the truth of the matter is that our need for temporal respite from whatever is overwhelming us is often just because we are weak. And God rarely shows us mercy by simply allowing us to remain weak. Which means, lastly, thirdly, when we cry out for mercy, when we feel like our soul has had enough, when we can't take it anymore of of, of the contempt and chaos and heartache and depravity of this world, that mercy will often not, not be a removal of the difficulty, but instead the better mercy, the better mercy that our God will give us is a better ability to glorify Him. That is mercy, brothers and sisters. When our God gifts us with a better ability to glorify Him through a greater confidence, through a greater sturdiness, through a greater endurance, and He'll show us that better mercy, listen, by giving us something precious, something valuable, something costly, something amazing. He'll show us that mercy by giving us a better understanding of who He is. He will give us a greater ability to glorify Him by giving us a greater ability to endure because He shows us more of Himself. He'll give us the ability to keep going where our world would quit so that we can point to the source of our endurance. He'll give us a confidence where our world would cower so that we can point to the one in whom our confidence lies. He'll show us the mercy of giving us a fortitude where the world would would be frail so we can point to the one on whom we have fixed our eyes. So if you're here this morning and you've had enough, if you can't take it anymore, if your soul is is beleaguered by this world 
for whatever reason, the sin, the depravity, the darkness, the heartache, all of it, then fix your eyes on the Lord. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on the Lord. Can you see Him? He's on His throne. He's sitting on His throne. Fix your eyes on Him and cry out for mercy. Cry out for the mercy of being better able to glorify Him because you see Him as bigger than your problems. Cry out to Him. This is what you can say. O God, I come before Your throne, and in my weakness I confess. I go astray and sin each day. I cast myself upon Your grace. I fix my eyes on You, my prize, Jesus, the author of my faith. Till You return or bring me home, You strengthen me to run the race. O Lord, forever faithful, all glory to Your name, because we have no other Savior except our great Redeemer, God and King. Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, God and King. Stand with me, please, and let's make that our cry for mercy.